0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure is good to be back on the air. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. And if I do recall the last time I was on the air with you guys, it was um, Halloween. Hard to believe we are now into November. I don't know where all the time has gone, but it has gone by quick. But one thing to me that has remained a a constant uh, fixture is being able to podcast with you guys regardless of the season, because no matter what book series topic we've been on, the end results, to me, have gone beyond this guy's ceiling. I say this because all of you, no matter how long you've uh, been with me, have come away learning more information on a handful of uh, topics that you may have learned some of the most 101 basic information available regardless of how long it might have been. But now you have uh, gone beyond uh, that 101 um, spectrum in terms of information and have been able to um, share it with uh, people uh, from all other uh, walks of life who uh, appreciate history in the same manner that uh, that I do. So nonetheless, uh, regardless of the season or time of year, we have... um, certainly uh, covered a lot, regardless of topic, and uh, and that's the way it ought to be, and that's the way it's going to continue to be. But here we are again uh, discussing in our new uh, book topic series, The Other Side of the Night, The Carpathia, The Californian, and The Night the Titanic Was Lost by Daniel Allen Butler. Well, in this uh, podcast segment, we are going to learn about, um, well, I don't know, should I give it away now? Of course I know that we already are, we are going to be learning about two ships that uh, that are directly affiliated with the Titanic. Uh in this podcast uh, topic series, I should say that we will learn about the first of the two ships and then when I'm on the air again next, we will learn about the other ship. How does that sound? But we will uh, be finding out here uh, momentarily the name of the uh ship that we will be uh talking about uh per this, uh, podcast, uh, segment topic. Uh, the ship that we will be talking about will also be featured in other, uh, topic, uh, discussions as well for this, uh, series. And the same will certainly be said for the other one, um, as well when I'm on the air again next time. So, uh, let's, uh, fasten our seatbelts and get, uh, prepared for another, uh, exciting, uh, round of, uh, history as we, um, have now embarked on the start of our new uh, podcast uh, book topic series, The Other Side of the Night. So our lead-off question is going to be the following. Was transatlantic passenger steamship Carpathia, or rather I should say Royal Mail Steamer, a.k.a. RMS Carpathia, was she owned by the Cunard, or I should say the Cunard, or White Star Line. Of course, I had to be reminded, um, most notably when I uh, talked about the intro from the other night, how there were multiple other um, ship liners from the uh, mid to late, late 19th century and into the start of the 20th century, but more often than not, the, the two that always came to my mind were uh, Cunard and White Star Lines. So the answer to this question uh, with regards to what, with regards to uh, which, which uh, ship line um, RMS. Carpathia was owned by is uh, Cunard Line. Uh, Cunard Line was founded in the year 1840, but originally it started out as the British and North American Royal Mail Steam Packet Company. It's quite a lengthy um, name to say the least, but many of you all, I'm sure, are wondering how in the world then did Cunard or Cunard Line come about? Okay, well I can um, definitely answer that question for you. Um, I had to do some research on that, um, which is which is important because you know it's one thing, you know, for a company to have its name, but it has to be there has to be a reason for why it's named for what it is. Uh, the Cunard line was named for Sir Samuel Cunard, and uh, it turns out that uh, Samuel Cunard was born in the year 1787. And to me, what's important about 1787 is that was the same year that um, that 55 delegates met in uh, Philadelphia. Of course, 39 went on to sign the United States Constitution. And in 1787, America gets a new uh, governing document that, um, that still has lasted to this day for 235 years. So what do you know? Uh, Samuel Cunard was born the same year that um, America came up with a, a better um, system of uh, governing. Samuel Cunard was the son of a, a master carpenter, along with being the son of a timber merchant. Samuel's father fled America during the American Revolutionary War and ultimately settled in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now, why would uh, Samuel's father have fled America during the American Revolutionary War? I know why. I mean, there has to be a very logical explanation for that. Is it fair to say that uh, the Cunard family... Is it fair to say that they were loyalists, a.k.a. loyal to king and country, the crown? Don't believe in severing ties with the mother country? Yes, and historians know that many of whom were loyalists, if they chose not to stay in their hometown, um, most notably, say, Boston or uh, New York, most loyalists left their hometowns and journeyed to um, Nova Scotia, which was a um, haven for uh, Loyalist uh, refugees. Uh, They also could have chosen to have gone into other parts of Canada. Uh, Other Loyalists even um, navigated uh, 3,000 miles across the ocean, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, that is, to uh, England. So nonetheless, Samuel Cunard's um, father, and I should say his family, Well, Samuel Cunard was born after the American Revolutionary War, but his father uh, fled America on the grounds of where his loyalty stood, and that was to king and and country, a.k.a. the crown. Now, as for Samuel Cunard, he became a successful businessman in Halifax, Nova Scotia, during the War of 1812, which was America's uh, Second War for Independence. Uh, her, you know, she already had gotten her political independence from Britain, but this go around was independence on the high seas, from uh, most notably from uh, impressment. That is, the British and the French, most notably the British, were capturing American sailors at sea, uh, forcing them uh, against their own will to fight um, to fight on the on on the side of England with her war against uh, France. And as well as just, you know, making lives, um, making the life, making life miserable for American cargo ships uh, trying to navigate the waters of the Atlantic. So, yes, Samuel Cunard becomes a successful businessman in Halifax, Nova Scotia during the War of 1812. He went about improving the family business with investments ranging from whaling, tea imports, to coal mining, and during that time, he he made the time to experiment with something uh, that would go on to be uh, revolutionary for its time in terms of in terms of benefiting boats. Mister Cunard, or I should say Samuel Cunard, went about experimenting with steam. And because his experimentation with steam proved to be a success he would become the founding director of Halifax Steamboat Company, which oversaw the building of Nova Scotia's first steamship in 1830. I can't imagine being alive, being in Nova Scotia around the year 1830, and witnessing the first steamship getting built. To me, this is revolutionary, largely in part because, for the longest time, mankind had to rely upon the winds. He had to get favorable winds in order for his ships, his wooden ships, to um, get from point A to point B along the waters, not just an ocean, but rivers as well. And I should point this out, too. um, I I don't know why I thought about it, but it's something that's relevant, and to me it's something that probably shouldn't be taken for, for granted. We all know that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died on July 4th, 1826. Thomas Jefferson died in the morning, John Adams died in the afternoon. The United States at that time was celebrating its 50th anniversary, or 50th celebration, of of declaring independence from England. But to think four years after, Nova Scotia had built its first steamship. Now, the steamships uh, steam ships had already taken, um, well, when I think of steamboats, I think of Robert Fulton. Um, for those of you who were with me when we discussed the fire of his genius about Robert Fulton and his uh, famed uh, steamboat vessel, uh, the Claremont. Uh, but for, and yes, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were both alive to see that uh, major uh, breakthrough. But the thing is, is that Not everybody's alive to see that, and to me, that's a big deal because, um, you know, it's one thing for something um, revolutionary to come through in terms of a uh, technological advance, but in that day and time, these advances just didn't happen overnight. It took time, but changes weren't happening every day or every year like they like what's taking place in this uh, in the 21st century and of course I should point out that that there was only one uh, founding that there was only one signer of the Declaration of Independence uh, left uh, who was alive in 1830 to see um, or whom would have known about Nova Scotia's first steamship being built and that was a uh, Charles Carroll of Maryland whom uh, lived to be uh, whom lived to be 95 years old. He died in 1832, but he was the last signer to die. And it just so happens that Charles Carroll was also um, on the inaugural uh, board of trustees for the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was introduced in 1828, being America's first official railroad. So a lot of uh, unique um, breakthroughs that were taking place early on in the 19th century, where Yes, there were people who had passed on that didn't uh, get to see this, and yet there were some who were still living, who saw the impossible become possible. From 1839 into the start of, 18, into the, start of the 1870s, the Cunard Line had established multiple paddle steamers on their Liverpool-Halifax-Boston route but right after the 1870s had begun, the Cunard Line fell behind rivals in White Star and Inman Lines. And between 1895 and 1905, it would mark one of the most difficult times uh, for Cunard, c- considering that only six new ships were launched throughout the final decade of the 19th century on the Cunard Line. The start of the... um. 20th century saw um, Cunard's fleet of ships, or vessels I should say, they weren't large, they weren't grand, they were rather small, and they didn't um, navigate uh, very smoothly along the waters. As a matter of fact, Servia, spelled S-E-R-V-I-A, Servia, was Cunard's oldest fleet member, dating to 1881. So by the start of the 19th century, the Servia, she's not, she is somewhere near a quarter of a century old, but that's the oldest fleet member on the uh, Cunard line. And by that point in time, you'd think about needing to retire that ship. But the bigger problem is this. Cunard line is going to have to obviously find a way to reinvent itself, not just one way, but perhaps multiple ways. So, At the turn of the 20th century, there had been a huge shift in in, um, attitude amongst the traveling public. I would hope that this is actually for the better. What is the traveling public demanding? For one, they are demanding faster service along the Atlantic. In other words, maybe the traveling public doesn't have time for a 16-day journey across the Atlantic Ocean anymore. So they obviously want faster service along the Atlantic, as well as entitlements in the forms of high-end services during the midst of of a, a round-trip voyage or a one-way um, voyage, uh, regardless of where they are uh, going from uh, Europe to America, whether it's, say, Boston, Philadelphia, New York. The bottom line is, is that uh, the traveling public feels that there needs to be some reinvention, otherwise, if the uh, if travel um, if traveling on, along the waters isn't going to get reinvented, then then there's obviously going to be a decline in uh, in in the greater uh, means of traveling. How did uh, Cunard respond to the challenges already made or achieved from rival liners? Well, for one, Cunard like Hamburg, America depended heavily on immigrant immigrant travel for money. But Cunard went about building ships whose ambiences revolved around speed and luxury. Okay, so Cunard knows that the public wants, you know, faster service, so that's gonna mean building ships that probably can navigate about between, say, 15, 20 knots, putting us maybe around 18 miles an hour or just over. And then luxury, you know, better amenities. So Cunard um, starts out um, building two ships that um, are going to prove that they have the ambience and also prove that they are cut out for enhanced uh, speed along the waters as well as luxury. And these ships were known as the Pretty Sisters, the Caronia and the Carmania. And then over time you got other ships, being the what I might like to think of as the granddaddy of them all or the granddaddies of them all, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, the grandest of Cunard liners' uh vessels. And of course, when I always think of Cunard, those the, the ships uh, Lusitania and Mauritania were often the two that come to our minds, or my mind. And I think it's fair to say that uh, we do tend to forget that sh- that um, ocean liners like White Star and uh, Cunard also built plenty of other ships. But to me, when I think of White Star, uh, two ships come to my mind, Titanic and Olympic, because they were the ones that got the most attention. And usually the ships that, that are famous are the ones that get the... Get the attention, and those below are dwarfed, meaning that yes, they are around, but they just don't they just don't um draw the the same level of attention prior to Cunard building the famed Lusitania and Mauritania. How did the existing fleet get improved upon okay so You know, it's one thing to build, you know, ships like the Lusitania and the Mauritania, but it just doesn't happen overnight. Right before 1900, an order was placed for building three vessel liners whose sizes would surpass what lied in the current state of uh, Cunard's um, fleet. But after the Avernia and Saxonia were launched in late 1899, the third vessel, Began uh, being built in September of 1901. And how ironic in September of 1901, uh, President William McKinley was uh, shot. I mean, he was assassinated, sadly. Um, he was assassinated at the uh, Pan American Exposition Fair in uh, Buffalo, New York on September the 6th of 1901 and died eight days later. So to think when he was assassinated in September of 1901, you've got this third vessel that um out of the order that had been um been placed just before the turn of the 20th century, this third vessel uh, would become Cunard's most famous ship in the line um, in the line service despite not being the largest nor the fastest okay so this ship isn't perhaps. It may not have the same ambiance as Lusitania and Mauritania would go on to have, but this third ship was the Carpathia. The Avernia, Saxonia, and Carpathia were all designed to serve individual, or I wouldn't say individual, I take it back, They were all three ships were designed to serve in dual-role capacities. Okay, so dual-role capa- capacities, that's more than one um, task. So, for the Avernia, Saxonia, and Carpathia, their dual-role purposes are to carry passengers and cargo. Can they carry passengers and cargo at the same time? Sure they can. The new class of ships catered only to second- and third-class passengers. But I do have to wonder, over time will uh, Cunard line allow these three ships to um, perhaps cater to first class? That will be um, remain to see, but who knows? We might find that out here uh, soon. So starting out for the Avernia, Saxonia, and Carpathia, they are um, pretty much catering only to second and third class passengers with the majority of the passengers being third class. The dual role purpose of transporting passengers and cargo aboard these three ships was meant to help generate greater revenue sums in terms of staying financially sound. Okay, so it, to me it sounds like that obviously White Star was in, um, not White Star, Cunard Line was facing um, some very, very um, financial um, hardships. Um, so how are you going to get out of these hardships? Well, you got to reinvent yourself. If you don't reinvent yourself, you're not going to be able to stay in the game. So, yes, it's one thing to transport passengers, but to make extra money, why not transport cargo? Why not do it both? I think it's a terrific idea. So this is going to help uh, generate greater revenue, not just short-term but uh, long-term. And is it fair to say that these uh, ships, uh, being the Saxonia, Avernia, and Carpathia, have been able to survive for the time being without uh, first-class passengers or let alone accommodations um, that would be geared towards first-class people? Yes. So even without first-class accommodations, Cunard sought to strive for excellence in going above and beyond to accommodate all second and third class passengers. I was blown away, folks, um, when I was reading this book about the amenities and luxuries that even the third class passenger or passengers got while on uh, a Cunard Line vessel. Third class had their own smoking room, which was often reserved just for the first class. You know, when I think of uh, one having their own smoking room, I mean, yes, that's first class. And obviously that was on the Titanic. I remember in the movie Titanic with uh, Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio, there was a scene um, well before the ship struck the iceberg where um, the the gentleman who played Colonel Archibald Gracie said, why don't you come join join us for some uh, brandy and cigars? Well, what that means is that not only are they having their brandy, but they're having cigars in the smoking room. So, believe it or not, on a Cunard line vessel, third-class passengers have their own smoking room, and they also have an open bar, a ladies' sitting room, a dining saloon where nearly 300 people could eat in one place at the same time. To me, I think that's amazing. Is it fair to say that Cunard Line is looking after its own uh, passengers? Yes. And isn't it fair to say that just because... I mean, to me, yes, it's one thing to be third class, but Cunard Line is treating the third class people as if they were first class. In other words, they're not sitting back and judging these people based upon what's in their pockets or based upon what they... Are bringing with them as they are journeying, journeying, uh, say three thousand miles across the ocean to start a new life in America. Now, as for the Carpathia, here's a little history on her. She was first launched on first launched on August sixth of nineteen o two, and completed in February of nineteen o three. Whereas the Titanic was eight hundred eighty two feet long, Carpathia is only five hundred fifty eight feet long. Carpathia has seven decks. Her top speed was 15.5 knots, or seventeen point eight eighteen miles per hour. Before 1905, she could carry 1,704 passengers. But after 1905, Carpathia decides to expand in terms of um, being able to accommodate more passengers. After 1905, the ship could accommodate 2,550 passengers. And, of course, the majority of these passengers are third class. So, to give you a um, breakdown of where uh, people uh, stood per class, 2,250 would have been roughly in third class if that is if it was filled to capacity for 2,550. So, 2,250 for third class 200 second-class, and 100 in first-class. Think about it, folks. The first-class uh, passengers are a small minority, an elite minority at best. Um, not, I would probably have to say less than 10%, but yet they make up such a small percentage that there probably really is no need to anticipate having over 1,000 passengers as first-class. Third-class quarters uh, were divided into uh, sections, and I thought this was uh, very interesting. You have to remember when you're aboard a ship in the, at the start of the 20th century, it's not like being in a hotel. Third-class quarters were divided into sections for single men and women, married couples and families. The single men were stationed up front, whereas the single women were placed along the back of a vessel at the far end. Married couples and families lodged in the boat's middle section. Married couples and families had rooms to themselves. Unmarried men and women all shared a room with anywhere from three to five passengers of the same gender. I mean, think about it, folks. Even in colonial times, it would have been very common for... um, 3 to 5 men lodging at a tavern to share a bedroom the only kind of the only type of people who could have literally afforded their own tavern room in terms of lodging without needing to share it with anyone else would have been those whom would have been um, labeled as gentry men so when i think of you know someone in colonial times who could afford his own lodging Without needing to share the room with anyone else, I mean, a handful of men come to my mind, like Peyton Randolph, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, George Wythe, uh, just to name a few. But if you know you can afford the money and and you can uh, have a room to yourself, then that tells you, then that should tell us something right there that that person has lots of money, and and is wealthy enough to do that. Uh, the average uh, man in colonial times, would not have been able to have uh, afforded his, uh, to have been able to have had his own room to himself. And very few people, it, it would be fair to say that amongst the third class, that for married couples and families, yes, um, it, there would have probably been more demand for these people to have had um, had rooms to themselves. But the primary reason why uh, single men and single women were not, um, living near one another on the um, ship, it was probably fair to say perhaps it was meant to deter um, improper behavior. Of course, that's vague onto itself, but the biggest fear probably was that um, a single man could harm a single woman. You'd hate to think of it happening during that time period, but at the same time, the company has an image, and they probably did not want to be um, hit with what we think of in today's time as a lawsuit or um, or have, an, have the incident leak out to the paper and be seen as something scandalous for its time. So there are uh, rules aboard a boat that need to be obeyed, and passengers need to be held accountable for their actions. So I think this uh, setup is great. It has nothing to do with class, but at the same time, it's also um, a means of uh, establishing uh, proper etiquette and uh, boundaries. As for um, food, the, um, the average fare or rate for third-class uh, lodging, I should say, uh, was uh, seven pounds. I'm not sure what that would be uh, dollar-wise, but it included uh, a clean bed, new linens, new soap each morning, and three meals daily. So if you're a third-class passenger aboard a Carpathia, Saxonia, Avernia, or any other uh, vessel along the Cunard Line, your experience is going to be well worth the while to where you will definitely um, recommend others going aboard um, that company's uh, ocean liners in terms of starting new 3,000 miles across the ocean. Now, what's special about May 5th of 1903? The Carpathia's maiden voyage took place where she departed Liverpool and stopped in Queenstown, Ireland, before reaching uh, New York, which was her final destination. Now, you know, it's one thing for um, the Carpathia to um, to be transporting passengers and cargo, but Carpathia... Uh, was, was not, it wasn't up there with Lusitania and Mauritania. I'll probably mention that again, and it's not a bad thing. But I will tell you this, that during the summer months, Carpathia was permanently scheduled for runs between Liverpool, England, and New York, or Liverpool and Boston. November, from November through May, Carpathia transported immigrants, mostly Italian and Hungarian peoples, from Trieste and Fayum in the Adriatic uh, Sea, to America. And by 1909, Carpathia was placed permanently on the Mediterranean route. So Carpathia is uh, pretty active, folks, uh, all all year round. Uh, but Carpathia also got um, bigger news ahead. What did the Carpathia herself experience in January of 1912? She experienced um, something that's called a hiring, or a selection of a new captain. This new captain, folks, was none other than Arthur Henry Rostron. So, let's get to know a little bit more about Arthur Henry Rostron. He was born in Astley Bridge near Bolton, Lancashire in 1869 to James and Nancy Rostron. It was around the age of 13 that he joined uh, the cadet school HMS Conway in Liverpool. And at age 13, he decided to pursue a career at sea. That's uh, pretty young to say the least, but hey, you know it never hurts to uh, to decide, or rather to make a decision early on as to where you want to go uh, career wise long term. So, you know it's easy to think, okay, eighteen, nineteen years old, that's when I go off to college. But at the age of fifteen, he uh, he gets apprenticed to a Liverpool shipping firm. So pretty much you could say that even at age fifteen. You know, we may not think of him as an adult just yet, but it is fair to say that he's already becoming an adult based upon the fact that he's being apprenticed and taking on um uh, taking on uh duties that um that most uh young men today could only um could only dream of I don't know if I'd say could only dream of, but would think are um too much for a fifteen year old to handle. So yes, at age 15 Rostran gets apprenticed to a Liverpool shipping firm, but then he would go on to sail aboard an iron-hulled clipper ship uh, known as Cedric the Saxon. In 1887 he began serving as a second mate on the Red Gauntlet. It sounds like this fellow has a bright future ahead of him. Now, prior to January of 1912, when exactly did Arthur Rostron, or Arthur Rostron, officially join the Cunard line? He officially joins the Cunard line in January of 1895. His His first position was fourth officer. On the ocean liner, Royal Mail Steamer Umbria One month prior to joining Cunard Line, uh, Rostron passed the examination for an extra master's certificate. Now, I'm sure many of you are wondering, what exactly is an extra master's certificate? Well, I can tell you this much. Earning um, a master's and an extra master's certificates are essential to the dreams of any or all young men wishing to become a ship commander. The master's certificate allowed the recipient or degree holder to observe, or rather, I should say, supervise watches. In other words, um, the um, the uh, recipient or uh, degree holder who uh, earned his um, master's certificate would be able to um, watch uh, those below him uh, perform um, tasks, uh, various tasks. And the um, degree holders were also allowed to make decisions about speed, safety, and ship's navigation without needing to consult or obtain approval from a senior officer. So in other words, yeah, there's nothing wrong with perhaps still getting consent or getting a perhaps a second opinion, but if you're able to... Um, if you're able to go about making decisions about speed and safety and ship's navigation and you have enough uh, confidence in yourself to do that, then that ought to tell you right there that, um, that, that if you know that you can do it, that you don't always have to go uh, to someone else above for the final answer. It's a big step in the right direction applicants had to be 21 years of age to be eligible for to take the exams passing examination meant ticket itself was approved for both sail and steam a double edge advantage in my opinion now prior to january of 1912 how many other cunard line vessels had arthur rostron served aboard Well, I can tell you this much, it was a handful at best. He served on uh, Cunard line vessels from Campania, Etruria, Ivernia, Pannonia, Saxonia, Servia, to Ultonia. So, I probably named folks at least um, seven. Well, that's pretty uh, impressive, given that he had uh, first uh, joined... um, Cunard line back in 1895, and that his uh, and that the uh, first um, vessel that he um, served under was uh, RMS Umbria. So he has uh, really um, worked his way up. I'm sure he could probably write a book on all the uh, ships that he has served under. Come September of 1907, uh, Ralston worked his way up to first officer aboard. The Lusitania. That's right, folks. Arthur Rostron had served on the Lusitania for a brief uh, period of time. However, it was cut short um, due to um, another obligation that had uh, come up. But in 1907, the Lusitania was, in fact, folks, the largest ship on the waters. Titanic has not even been built yet, folks. It'll be a couple of uh, years, probably say between nineteen o nine and nineteen ten, when uh, when uh, the first uh, groundwork uh, for Titanic is getting um, underway in terms of um, laying down her keel. January eighteenth, nineteen twelve, Arthur Rostron becomes uh, captain to the Carpathia, and a week later he takes the ship to New York. The westbound crossings, that is going from Europe to America, for example, westbound crossings would have uh, seen Carpathia be heavily filled with immigrants in third class with few first and second class passengers. So yes, going westward means that you're transporting immigrants, the bulk of the passengers being immigrants whom, whom are going to be starting um, a new life in America, Eastbound passengers, that is, going from America to uh, Europe, saw Carpathia transporting Americans on holiday travel excursions, with very few third-class passengers aboard. The only thing I could think of is that for those few third-class passengers who are aboard, they could be going back uh, to Europe and visiting um, relatives whom are still, um, whom still live uh, in the. Uh, city or village where the, where the other um, half of the family had been residing until their um, departure uh, from, from the old village to the uh, new world <laughs> being America. Carpathia, and I'm sure many of you are wondering, now how did Cunard Line name the ship Carpathia? Well, you know, names, uh, when you name um, a ship... I mean, there has to be a reason for it. We just don't randomly issue a name because we don't. We can't think of any other name. Uh, Carpathia is named for the Carpathian uh, mountain range. This is a range of mountains forming that forms an arc across Central Europe. The range going from far eastern Czech Republic and Austria in the northwest through Sol- Slovakia. Poland, Ukraine, Romania, to Serbia in the south. It's fair to say that the uh, Carpathian mountain range is a pretty uh, extensive um, mountainous range when you consider all those uh, countries that were just named. Was Carpathia in Europe or America on April the 11th, 1912? Carpathia is is in the United States. She departs from Cunard's Pier 54 into the Hudson River, leaving New York Harbor with 125 first-class passengers, 65 in second class, and 550 in third. So that means, uh, folks, that she's got um, 740 passengers. Captain Rostron was an officer respected by everyone whom came in direct contact with him. He is known for his quick-action decision-making, including having um, vigorous energy, never smoked nor drank, to not using any form of profanity. Is it fair to say that perhaps Captain Arthur Rostron is the epitome of a true gentleman? To me, it sounds uh, very possible, and and I have a strong feeling that it's probably going to uh, show that, when uh, the time comes down the road in the foreseeable future, um, not just being the epitome of a true gentleman, but how he will uh, conduct himself under uh, the most daunting of uh, situation that he will uh, come across in all of his years of uh, sailing along the North Atlantic Ocean. Captain Rostron uh, commanded uh, Carpathia during a time known as the Edwardian Era. Now, uh the Edwardian era is named after uh Queen Victoria's son uh King Edward VII. And I should definitely say that it's King Edward VII because the only other King Edward that I've known whose uh reign didn't last very long was um the late Queen Elizabeth II's uncle who um was uh King Edward VIII when he abdicated uh because he wanted um to have a a romantic life with Wallace Simpson, Edward VIII, after his abdication, his brother took the reign, being Queen Elizabeth II's father, uh, Bertie, known as uh, George VI. So nonetheless, the Edwardian era is named after Edward VII, uh, who was uh, Queen Victoria's son. But uh, one of the unique things about the Edwardian era was that... um, is that it was the heyday of um, sailing for uh, Cunard and uh, White Star Line and other um, ship liners. But under the Edwardian era, it was the captains that stood out amongst everyone else below. That is, the uh, ship captains. How so? Well, well, if if you're a captain that's well-known and liked, you're going to gain lots of recognition for being a good host. And by being a good host, if a captain has proven to be a good host, his image will um, attract a loyal group of passengers whom will travel with him wherever he goes. Carpathia uh, did not rival uh, Cunard fleet ships of Lusitania and Mauritania, given those two had more to offer based upon their glamour. Passengers aboard the Carpathia, whom occupied uh, Captain Rostron's clientele base, would have been your um, average uh, businessman to manufacturing and uh, tradesman peoples. And that's okay. Uh, as long as these uh, people uh, feel as though they are getting um, proper um, service and are being valued, uh, that, that's all that matters. It doesn't have to be top-of-the-line everything, but it has to be uh, satisfactory enough to where, you, uh, to where customers are going to want to come back, short and long-term. Now, the first two days of Carpathia's voyage out of, New York, out of New York were considered uneventful. Okay, that's not a bad thing if it's uneventful. Passengers and crew aboard the ship were well-settled. The weather was cold, but it's not super cold. But it just feels very odd, to say the least, that now, here we are in April, and when I think of April, I tend to think of it as being, you know, the start of, um, you know, obviously spring and a little bit warmer, not excessively hot, but in between. But during this time on the North Atlantic, Mother Nature is going to throw some very, very odd curveballs in terms of uh, the weather, in terms of uh being cold. So, the problem here, or rather the irony to it, is that the the previous winter in the Arctic region had been one that was uh, rather mild. So, we're talking about the winter of 1911. So, being mild, it's not hot, not cold, but it's just uh, been a little unseasonably warm. And what that means folks is that in this case there were reports of excessive ice amounts that broke away from original glacier formations in Greenland downward into the North Atlantic. So in other words it's one, it's one thing for for ice to be coming apart but it's moving a little bit further south than it should. Captain Arthur Rostron is not concerned, I mean, he's not, this, I'm not trying to sound ignorant here, he's not concerned given the, pa- given the fact that Carpathia's course will be going more than 80 miles south of all westbound routes, where the ice itself would be more readily um, visible. But how was Sunday morning, April 14th, different from the previous two days? Well, after the crew finished breakfast, uh, Captain Rostron conducted a ritual known as the Captain's Inspection. The inspection procedures involved visiting every part or section of the ship from top deck to bottom, bow to stern. In other words, we need to make sure that the ship is functioning right. Yes, she might be sailing. That's great. Everything may look great on the outside, but what about on the inside? You know, how are we going to respond if in the event something unexpected happens with our ship? Well, we also need to uh, partake in boat drills, and that's what, that was what was uh, part of the um, captain's inspection. Boat drills were conducted, which required the crewmen to examine oars, masts, sails to rigging that were stowed away per each boat. And the boat drills also were done to ensure that lifeboats themselves had no deficiencies. I will tell you this. One of the things I have learned uh, through uh, various Titanic documentaries was that I might mention this again later on, but I will have to just tell you all of this now. The Titanic crew did not, did not um, partake in any of this stuff simply in part because they felt the ship was so unsinkable that it would be a waste of time to conduct lifeboat drills and also a waste of time to conduct uh, inspection procedures. To me, that's just pure ignorance. And as the old saying goes, no matter how sophisticated your technology is, you can't outsmart Mother Nature. Something tells me that, uh, Titanic... Is going to be in for a rude awakening. Not trying to give it away, folks, but the bottom line is that you know we have to, you know, we've got to take into consideration how one captain is doing all the right things, and you got this grand ship out on the North Atlantic. Who's doing the opposite? Was wireless technology still in its infancy come uh, nineteen come nineteen twelve, despite having made uh, leaping strides? Uh, yes. Ranges in terms of distance, in terms of long distances, remained limited, meaning it, would, it was still hard for captains and their crew to locate uh, landmarks, such as lighthouses, in times of emergencies. Because remember, not everyone had their uh, wireless stations on. So, yes, you could spot a lighthouse if there was if the visibility was clear enough, but if you couldn't spot anything nearby you and you were struggling to find communication with another ship then that really did put you in a um it put you between what's called a rock and a hard place so but the bigger issue was that uh, standardization was what was lacking significantly given that there were half a dozen types of equipment you have two different morse codes american and international no regulations in store uh, regarding wireless uh, watch hours to having no set rules behind where wireless operators belonged given they didn't work for the shipping line that owned their certain vessels, but instead were employed by British Marconi. So the operators uh, were spending uh, more time uh, sending messages to friends and families while ships en route along the waters uh basically private messages were more time-consuming so to me if you're spending more time with private messages isn't it fair to say that the most important of messages regarding safety along the waters could be overlooked yes uh who is uh Harold Cottam that's spelled c-o-t-t-a-m who is Harold Cottam Well, for starters, he became the youngest graduate ever of the Marconi School at age 17, but couldn't go to sea until age 21 due to regulation policies. But come February of 1912, he joined the Carpathia after having spent the previous four months aboard White Star Line's Medic. Going into 1912, Carpathia only had one wireless operator whom worked on Average. Listen to this, folks. A shift that ran from 15 to 18 hours, that included eating meals while working, and breaks that came at non-consistent times. I can't imagine being <laughs> uh, being on call 15 to 18 hours without any set breaks. You're eating at um, eating while working. I mean, I guess they just didn't know any better back then, but they still had a job to do. Passenger um, messages tended to interfere with ocean traffic deemed important to proper ship navigation. Here's a good example. Uh, Sunday, April 14th, 1912. Large numbers of reports about ice being present came through. Harold Cottom was very focused on the reports of um, ice being present, and he wrote down... What he uh, knew uh, could be of use for Carpathia's captain and crew. Come 7 p.m. on April the 14th, uh, Harold Cottam spoke directly to Jack Phillips, a senior operator on board White, White Star liner Royal Mail steamer Titanic. Phillips sent the ship. Phillips sent rather a ship-to-ship message aboard Carpathia. Titanic um, had not been heard from for um, most of the day. On April the 14th, uh, Cottam thought Titanic could have been uh, dealing with equipment issues regarding wireless communication. But it turns out, folks, that uh, I'll mention this again. I I know I mentioned in the intro, Titanic received a total of six uh, ice warnings didn't uh, really heed to those warnings very seriously. Just before 10 p.m. on April the 14th, Harold Cottam gets ICE warnings sent from liner Misaba, yeah, Misaba and cargo ship Californian. After receiving these warnings, Cottam took messages up to the bridge, a.k.a. the main deck, and provided them to Captain Rostron, whom, after having read the warnings, reminded the crew they were in a better position given ice location spottings were well to the north yes they may be well south of where these um, ice uh, where these um, spottings of ice were located but just because they're well south it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that they um, aren't going to be immune from getting a um, an emergency distress, um, message from another ship. And if they do get an emergency distress, they have to, uh, take various factors and they will have to take various factors into consideration. But it is fair to say that, um, uh, Captain Rostron is not a man who uh, is going to take things lightly. He is, if somebody tells him that there are, uh, fields of ice not far away, he's going to listen to the, um, to the experts who have given him the advice. He's not going to mess with Mother Nature. It's fair to say that if I had to choose uh, being on a um, liner, I'd like to be on Carpathia. I'd like to be with Captain Rostron. I don't want to be with someone who's going to um, not respect Mother Nature. I don't want to be with a crew that doesn't that's going to um, take the ice warnings lightly and become more concerned about uh, record speed and getting uh, to New York. I mean, that was the Titanic's final destination, or supposed to be her final destination. But uh, I will say that uh, we've uh, covered a lot of ground. And as I said earlier, and I'll say again, we will uh, learn more about uh, Carpathia. I mean, after all, it is fair to say that there's a reason why she's included in the title of this book. But when I'm on there again, next we're going to uh, talk about... Um, the Californian and her captain. So, uh, thank you uh, for your time as always. Um, I really, I thoroughly enjoy being on the air with you all. Uh, you guys are great listeners. Without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be. But uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners. You all do an amazing job. Uh, I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And no matter where you all live in the world, continue to stay safe. Take care.